Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You're going to go down for a nap. (laughs) Big hug. Mom, but what if it just doesn't work? What if it just doesn't work? Well, you just got to try with naps. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. She's got to be a pretty great distraction right about now, huh? She is, yeah. Although, um, you know, getting work done while homeschooling a four-year-old is a, its own kind of special challenge. <laughs> I mean, the thing about naps is it's always worth trying, am I right? From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is another episode of the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a normal book club, except sometimes the author and her four-year-old daughter shows up, too. So if you've never heard of Nerdette Book Club before, here's the deal. We pick a book each month and we talk about it with a rotating panel. Our March book was Emily St. John Mandel's fifth book. It's called The Glass Hotel. And last week we heard from you listeners about what you thought about the book. But today we're going to talk to Emily herself. We're going to talk to her about her life as a writer. But first, I just wanted you to hear a little bit about her philosophy as a reader because I just think it's so good. There's that formula that I came across years ago that you've probably heard where, you know, it's 100 pages minus your age. That's the number of pages that you should read. (laughs) But sometimes you know a book is horrendous by like page two. And like, do I really have to keep going until page whatever, you know, to to meet that formula? Um, So, you know, sometimes I've abandoned books pretty far in. There was one novel – I'm not just being diplomatic. I honestly can't remember which book it was. (laughs) Where I put it down like in the final fourth. I was like, I just don't care. Um, So yeah, I've made it that far. I've made it to like page five. And it's like, you know what? This is really tedious and it's not holding my attention. Um, Yeah, yeah, I guess that's the real metric for me. Like, does it hold my attention or not? Which Mm -hmm. is not really fair to the book because obviously there are moments like in the middle of a pandemic when one's attention is a little compromised, but um, yeah, that that is the way I think about it. I don't know about y'all, but my attention has totally been compromised. It seems like the only thing I can read these days are like super soapy, ridiculous plot lines. And I mean, for the most part, I gotta say I am totally here for it. So anyway, Emily is also the author of the post-pandemic sci-fi novel called Station Eleven, which we can't not also talk about. But first, I want to spend some time with The Glass Hotel because that is the book that you have written that has recently been published. Emily, hey. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for coming on. So, you know, I feel like now more than ever is a really good time early on in these interviews to just be like, how actually are you? Like, how are you doing these days? I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm in New York City, so, you know, hello from the red zone. Uh Um, So it's kind of generally – it's this weird thing where I'm aware that the situation in the city is dire and I hear sirens all day. Um, But day-to-day life is actually peaceful. And, you know, that doesn't mean it's always easy to work because there there is a psychological impact to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, living with the constant sirens. But it's – yeah, it's okay. How are you doing? 
I'm hanging in. Yeah. I feel like my personal sanity has been helped a lot by focusing on the good small stuff, you know? Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. So I mentioned the glass hotel. It came out almost exactly two weeks ago. Um, Can you tell us a little bit like what would be happening under normal circumstances if you had just written a book that had come out two weeks ago? Um, I would be in the midst of my 25 city tour. I have this, it's almost like this weird sort of parallel life happening where <laughs> my, uh, my Gmail calendar, like it's my Google, my Google calendar, it still has all of these like automatically generated um, plane tickets on it. So yeah, weird days where it will say like 2 p.m. flight to Seattle and also like 2.30 p.m. interview. And it's just, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I would have been traveling. Um, wow. What a trip yeah. that you still have them. That reminds, I mean, so much about the Glass Hotel is this idea of kind of like a counter life and, you know, mm-hmm. like the choices that you would have made that would have led to sort of a parallel sort of person. I feel like that's so right. perfect that you're like still sort of living this fake version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The counter life is right there on the Google calendar. <laughs> so. Yeah, it is weird seeing those reminders. Um, I have to say, though, the experience of launching a book in this time has actually been less weird than I than one might expect. Like I was, I was kind of dreading doing virtual events like on Zoom and Crowdcast mm-hmm. and Instagram Live. Um, it's fine, and it's actually it's been kind of enjoyable. Which, if we're being honest here, is maybe partly a function of quarantine, where, you know, just getting to talk to somebody who doesn't live in your house all of a sudden feels like this amazing thing, like getting to see somebody else's living room. <laughs> so, yeah, the uh, the experience of launching a book, it's uh, it's been okay. It's been better than expected. Good. Okay, so I'm going to say a sentence now in an attempt to summarize what is a very intricate novel that you have written. <laughs> yeah, good luck. I can't do it. <laughs> Okay, so here's here's my attempt. I'm going to say that this is a story that's told from multiple points of view in multiple times and multiple places, but at its core, it's about a Bernie Madoff type character whose Ponzi scheme falls apart and the lives who were impacted by essentially his theft. Do you think that's a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, that is a fair summary. So... One of the most pivotal scenes takes place in like this super remote, super fancy hotel, which is, you know, the title, The Glass Hotel. Did you always know that that hotel would be such an important part of the story? I did. Yeah. You know, hotels, they just work so well from a technical perspective for novels. Like if you're looking for some way to bring this really kind of disparate cast of characters together, um, a hotel is a good way to do it. That's where a billionaire will plausibly spend time with a bartender and, you know, the bartender's brother can be on staff, like that that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so that hotel was always there. I wish that it weren't fictional. The, uh, the hotel in the book, that's kind of my vision of what a perfect hotel might look like. Um, I did an epic promotional tour for Station Eleven, which came out in 2014. Mm-hmm. And... I've actually kind of been traveling for that book ever since. Um, not now, obviously, but you know, um, I had, yeah, I did have dates like this month on the calendar for that book. Huh. Just like paid lectures and onstage conversations and stuff for libraries and universities. Um, so anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that I've stayed in way too many hotels over the <laughs> last like six years or whatever it's been. So with the hotel in the book, I was, I was thinking, you know, the attributes it seems to me that the best hotels have. It's like they kind of exist outside of time and space in the sense that you feel like you're in this sort of magic bubble where anything's possible. Um, 
And by anything, I mean like you can get a cappuccino at 3 a.m. Like it's not a problem. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of it's kind of magical. And like even room service still seems kind of magical to me after all these years. Uh-huh. You know, you want an Earl Grey tea, you just get on the phone and it arrives. <laughs> it's a, yeah. So I, I was thinking, well, what's my ideal hotel? It's kind of its own self-contained bubble. I thought it would just kind of heighten the surrealism and make it more interesting if that sort of luxury bubble were located in a really incongruous place. Mm-hmm. So I placed it in – it's actually a real place. I just changed the name. There's a tiny community at, at the far northern end of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Um, in real life, it's called Quatsino, uh, population about 80, I think. And I spent a couple of weeks there as a teenager. Hmm. It's just a string of houses along a road. There were fisheries up there, which is why it exists, but those closed decades ago. So now, tiny place, no roads in or out, no utilities. Uh, You get there on a motorboat. So, yeah, I just thought it would be interesting to place that magical hotel in this kind of like incongruous wilderness setting. There were a lot of things about your book that I found super resonant, but having grown up in Fairbanks, Alaska, Mm. I was fascinated by all of the different lines you had throughout the book about how, you know, people love the idea of wilderness, but they don't often want to have to do all of the work that's involved with being so far away from everything. I just yeah, loved absolutely. that. Yeah. I think the way I put it in the book was, you know, there's the idea of wilderness and then there's the unglamorous labor of it, which yes. it sounds like you're familiar with, like firewood is a pain. <laughs> to yep, totally. Them. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I think, uh, I think if most people are to be honest with themselves, they don't really actually want wilderness. They just want the beauty and none of the labor, <laughs> which, you know, it's fine. But yeah. <laughs> So at its core, I feel like the best way to describe this book is as a ghost story. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Was that always in the beginning, like that it ha- that that aspect of it was there? No, I was just going to write about a Ponzi scheme. Um, yeah, my starting point for the book was I was fascinated by Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme which, of course, collapsed at the height of the 2008-2009 economic collapse. Mm -hmm. And something I like to emphasize is that all the characters in this book are fictional. This is not a novel about Madoff or his real family or staff or investors. But the crime is the same, the crime at the center of the story. So I thought it was going to be this pretty straightforward, tightly focused, white-collar crime novel. But I don't write from an outline. And there are some pretty obvious disadvantages to that. Like my first drafts are a mess. Um, <laughs> but a real advantage to that approach, just kind of winging it, is that a book can take some kind of unexpected directions as I'm working on it. And that definitely happened here. So yeah, set out to write a story about a Ponzi scheme. And then I started introducing ghosts in the prison section, which if you're familiar with Madoff's crime, it's not a huge giveaway to say that Jonathan uh, goes to prison, the uh, perpetrator of the crime in the novel. Well, and is it even Um, the first time that Jonathan is introduced in the book that we know he ends up in prison? Or at least that he's committed some kind of crime? Right. Yeah, that's right. I've forgotten about that. Yeah, the first time we're introduced to him, the line's something like, nothing about him would suggest that he would eventually die in prison. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's not much of a spoiler. Um, But yeah, so I started off with just the idea of him seeing ghosts of his investors in prison. And then that just kind of started to pervade the book. And I was more and more interested in that ghostly element. So yeah, by the end, I'd gone from this book, which 
would probably have been pretty easy to describe. Oh, it's a white-collar crime novel about a massive Ponzi scheme Mm -hmm. uh, to this thing where it's like, it's a ghost story with a Ponzi scheme and container shipping. And people just look at me like, what? (laughs) What Yeah, it it became a much weirder book the more I worked on it. (laughs) What do you think this book says about regret? Um, it is freighted with regret. Yeah, that is a major theme. Well, I think even just like within the context of it being a ghost story, right? Like so much about what ghosts, like the verb for ghosts are, is haunt, right? And like to be haunted by either what you did or what you didn't do in either case can be so powerful, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That was a framework uh, in which I was thinking about regret because once you start writing a ghost story. And once you're kind of committed to that, it's interesting to think about different ways of being haunted, you know, as you just alluded to, that we tend to think of ghost stories in this kind of classical sense, mm-hmm. you know, the translucent figure wafting down the corridor in the abandoned house or whatever. Um, but yeah, of course, regret is a kind of haunting. I don't think anybody even makes it as far as adulthood, let alone middle age. Um, without accumulating a certain catalog of regrets, you know, the things we wish we'd said or wish we hadn't said or done or hadn't done or the email you wish you hadn't sent, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> um, and I do think it's a kind of haunting the way those moments return to us, you know, the way we kind of uh, think about them every so often throughout our lives. Yeah. Well, and there's such a powerful line. I don't want to get too into the plot, but one of the characters is he has like, he wronged his half sister. Yeah. And and he knows she knows that he stole something from her. Yeah. And and he's just like waiting for her to show up and call him on it. And there's this gorgeous paragraph about, you know, the number of times that he's played out that conversation. And, yeah. and that he's just waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. And the knowledge of that kind of impending is more powerful than if he had just had the actual conversation in real life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something real about that. Like if you just have the conversation, it's a bad conversation. If you don't have the conversation, but spend, I think it's like a decade in Paul's uh, case, Mm -hmm. playing it over and over again in your head the way it might go. Like that's, that's rough. That's objectively so much harder. Yeah. It reminds me of another theme that I thought was really powerful in this book, which is just the idea that like often there is a really powerful sense of relief when the bad thing happens just because at least then it already happened. Yeah, exactly. That was, um, it sounds like you're alluding to um, Jonathan in prison. And that was a really interesting idea for me to think about that, you know, if you're somebody who's committed a Ponzi scheme on a Madoffian scale, you know, decades of deception and billions of dollars, wouldn't it be kind of a relief to wake up every morning in prison? I like know that the worst thing that could happen has already happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's hard to put yourself in the psychology of somebody who would do that to start out with. But once you make that leap, that seemed kind of intuitive to me. <laughs> so what's the timeline for when you started writing this book? Like, was it immediately after hearing about this Madoff stuff that you started sort of like tumbling over that in your head? I think it was. Yeah, it's hard to uh, it's hard to trace it exactly in retrospect because I was working on Station Eleven by then. Right. But you know, I came across a uh, a notebook from I think it was 2011 where there was a line in the book. It was a book of like ideas. Um, 
And one of them was a um, novel about Madoff-style Ponzi scheme, question mark. And it was like, whoa, I was thinking about that in 2011. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I'd been turning it over in my head for a long time. Um, Station Eleven was this kind of juggernaut that rolled over my life, and nothing was ever the same after. And that was that was like overwhelmingly positive. Like it was incredible to be able to quit my day job. That's something I really, truly never thought would happen, and I was okay with that. Um, but yeah, the tour ended up being epic. I was on the road on and off for fourteen months, um, and and then right after that, I had a baby. So I was kind of slowed down by logistics and working on the next book. Um, but also, and this is about the least sympathetic problem in the whole world, so I'm not <laughs> complaining, but when you write a book that has the kind of success that Station Eleven had, there is all of a sudden this feeling of an invisible audience sort of looking over your shoulder, waiting mm. for what comes next. So I think there was a degree of pressure that I put on myself that slowed down the glass hotel and made it a little bit harder to write. So altogether, it took about five years, which is twice as long as it normally takes me to write a novel. Station Eleven and the previous three books were all about two and a half years. So yeah, it was a really long haul. I was working on it intensely for, um, yeah, for about five years before I sold it. So you mentioned Station Eleven. I are are you game to chat about it for a couple minutes? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It's kind of like the contagious elephant in the room, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Good word choice. Good word choice. All right. We'll talk about Station Eleven in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It was very interesting to read reviews about The Glass Hotel because literally every single one of them starts with Station Eleven. And I get it, right? I mean, like, yeah. what a fascinating and prescient novel to have written you know, now that we're in this global pandemic, like that is fascinating and haunting. How frustrating is it for you as a person who maybe would rather talk about the book she just put five years into? (laughs) Um, It's not really frustrating, but it has been a weird thing to try to navigate. Um, It's not that I don't want to talk about Station Eleven. Like I'm fine with it. It's more that um, there's something about being called prescient that kind of... um, I don't know. It makes me uneasy, I guess, because when I was researching Station Eleven, that research involved reading a lot about the history of pandemics. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was mostly reading about the smallpox epidemic in the Americas in the 1790s. But then, you know, there are so many of the Black Death, like the repeated episodes of um, bubonic plague, measles coming to Europe and then to the Americas. Like it goes on and on. Um, And what becomes clear when you read that history is that pandemics are something that happens to us, you know? So it's like, if I, yeah, I I don't know. I, um, so I don't feel like I predicted anything, you know, there was 
always going to be another pandemic. Mm -hmm. It was a matter of time. Yeah, it was a matter of time. It didn't have to be this bad. You know, the uh, the response to a pandemic obviously determines a great deal about the severity of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was always going to happen. So, yeah, I um, uh, yeah, I, I guess I saw pandemics as a kind of inevitability after doing that research. And, you know, I will say um, this is not to mitigate the awfulness of the moment that we're in. It's pretty dark. But, you know, we do survive these things as a society. Mm -hmm. You know, we've come through this before. We'll come through it again. So I take a kind of comfort in that. So given the fact that you did a bunch of research about pandemics to write Station Eleven, is there anything about this current pandemic that that surprises you about the way it's playing out? Um, yeah, I guess there is. What what I didn't really think about when I was thinking about St- Station Eleven and thinking about pandemics was the the dread of the approaching pandemic. Like that was just a dynamic that never really occurred to me for some reason. Huh. You know, you, you think of them <laughs> as being kind of binary. It's like you're in a pandemic or you're not. Right. But there was a long lead up, at least in New York. Yeah, and that was partly our own fault. I mean, it was just a failure of imagination on our, on our parts that even though it was in Seattle, we somehow, it was like, oh yeah, I'm sure it's circulating around New York. But we weren't like, guys, it's circulating around New York. Pull your kids out of school now. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. just like a lack of urgency somehow because we didn't quite believe it. But at the same time, there was this sense of creeping dread that kind of pervaded the city. Um, this is back around early March. Um yeah, so that was something that I just didn't really anticipate and hadn't really thought about. Emily, that's so funny because so when I'm not making a podcast, I often am like anchoring newscasts in the mm-hmm. in Chicago's public radio station newsroom. And I, like the first time I heard about this flu that was in China, it was probably like the beginning of January. And I was like, oh, Station Eleven, I've seen how this plays <laughs> out. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And did you immediately buy toilet paper? I hope you did. I did. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, because it, it was just like, I don't know. I mean, people talk about how that's one of the amazing things about science fiction is that, you know, like I knew what to picture. And obviously it's not as bad as the pandemic that you have created in Station Eleven. Thank God. Yeah. But it there was just something really interesting about like, oh, no, I read this book. You know, like I can... Right. I can imagine this better than I would have been able to if I had never heard of that book. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. For me, it's like, even though I wrote the book, I still somehow only half believed it was coming, which is weird huh. in retrospect. But I was kind of making these sort of low-key preparations, like trying to keep it on the down low so my husband wouldn't think I was insane. So, <laughs> you know, he was like, why do we have eight cartons of half and half in the fridge? And I'd be like, you know, I just want to be prepared. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Well, Emily St. John Mandel, thank you so much for talking with me. This was really, really a pleasure. This was fun. Thanks so much. Emily St. John Mandel, absolute delight. If you haven't already read The Glass Hotel, it is not too late. That's the thing about podcast book clubs. You can read a book at your own leisurely pace and join us when you're ready. And I mean, if you are just like speeding through and you're super excited for our April pick, I can't wait to have you join us for You Never Forget Your First by Alexis Co. In fact, coming up next Friday, we're going to do an interview with Alexis that's going to come out before our discussion episode. So you can hear that right here on April 17th. 
All right. The show is produced by me along with Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brandon Banizak. I hope you have some really good naps in your future. I can't see. You can't see them, but they can hear you. Oh. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.